The scripture reads in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. May God bless the reading of his word. Here we have motherhood, right at the very founding of creation. The title of my sermon this morning is Mother's Day and Anti-Conception. Mother's Day and Anti-Conception. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you and thank you for this time that we have in your word and looking at history. And we just ask and pray, O Lord, that you help me to declare that which you've given me to preach this day, that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of those gathered. We thank you for the corporate blessing we had for these children this morning. We just ask, O God, that your blessing would be upon them once again. And bless all the mothers here, O God. And bless their children. Cause each one to have a heart hungry for you and a desire to glorify you faithfully in the earth in the midst of this wicked age. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. To be a mother, you have to have a child. And I do not have to tell you how many Americans do not want to have children. The vast majority, once they've had their one or their two, do not want to have children. And they go through great pains to assure that they won't have them. You live in America, so you know that. You know that. If you're crazy enough to have a third child, you know that when telling others about that, the congratulations cease. So I do not have to tell you how many Americans do not want to have children, but I will tell you that if you speak against anti-conception, you will be hated. If you speak against birth control, you will be hated, both by unbeliever and Christian alike. Today, Mother's Day 2021, I want to speak against birth control. I want to confront the anti-conception juggernaut. Webster defines juggernaut as a massive, inexorable force. An undefeatable force is what it's considered, a juggernaut. A massive, inexorable force, campaign, movement, or object that crushes whatever is in its path. That's what anti-conception is. It's a massive, inexorable force, campaign and movement that most all capitulate before and are crushed by its consequences. And so as Christians, we should want to confront that. And this morning, I will stand in front of it and speak against it and be hated for doing so. The anti-conception mentality is like confronting a massive skyscraper of dung, and you're standing there with a teaspoon in your hand. Where do I begin? Overwhelming. It's so deep within our culture. But I will begin to dig. And I will pray the Lord uses the few and simple things I say here today to get you to begin to think. 
This sermon will not be comprehensive on the matter of birth control. That would take a bare minimum four weeks of sermons in order to do that properly, if not more. But hopefully it'll make you think. Some Christians have said to me, show me in the Bible where it says that you cannot use birth control. But I simply respond by saying, show me in the Bible where it says that you can use birth control, if that's how you want to do things. I mean, there's lots of things the Bible says don't do, clearly we shouldn't do, that it doesn't say it in C-spot run fashion. So we could do tit for tat, but the truth is, Scripture and history reveal that we should not use birth control, that we should not embrace the anti-conception mentality that the world promulgates. The Scriptures implicitly teach that we should not use birth control, and for over 1,900 years of Christian history, not a single Christian body ever embraced the use of birth control. In fact, all, whether Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, all condemned the use of birth control. All. So let's start with Scripture. God not only says to be fruitful and multiply here in Genesis 1, our text, but he reiterates the command again in Genesis 9, verses 1 and 7. He reiterates the command again in Genesis 35, verse 11, and he reiterates the command again in Leviticus 26, verse 9. He's emphatic. The product of a man and a woman coming together as husband and wife is to multiply, is to bear children, is to have children. Not to take means to make sure they have few or none of those, but to have them. Secondly, the scriptures repeatedly uphold children as a blessing from God. For example, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. It declares, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Repeatedly, the scriptures uphold children as a blessing from God. Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, where God talks about, in the first 14 verses of that chapter, how he'll bless them if they obey him and live for him. That verse says, verse 4 of Deuteronomy 28 says, Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. One of the blessings is having children. In the other 54 verses of Deuteronomy 28, which give us the curses that God will bring if they live in disobedience to him, verse 18, one of the curses is, Cursed shall be the fruit of your body. The exact opposite. God desires for us to have children. It's repeatedly clear in Scripture that it's a good thing to have children, that they're a blessing from God, they're a gift from Him. First Chronicles 25, verses 4 and 5 says, Of Heman, the sons of Heman, Bukiah, Mataniah, Huzael, Shabul, I won't even go through them all. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God, to exalt his horn, For God gave Heman 14 sons and three daughters. He had 17 kids. 
Did he do that to burden him? To make his life a miserable hell? No. It says that he gave him all of them to exalt his horn. To make his lineage great within the land. In 1 Chronicles 26, verses 4 and 5, it says, Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehozabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathanael the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Pulthi the eighth. Eight sons. And then the word of God says this, For God blessed him. For God blessed him. He didn't burden him. He blessed him. I once had a pastor say to me about a couple that had four children, the youngest at the time being about five, and the husband wanted to have a fifth child, which the pastor thought was crazy. And he says to me, he says, what kind of loving husband would ask his wife if they could have a fifth child? Well, if you know me, he asked that of the wrong person. And we had an interesting discussion, which ended with him simply saying, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. I went home and I asked Clara and I walked in. We were still bearing children at that time in our life. And I said, um, hey, Clara, what would you think if I asked you if we could have another baby? And she stopped what she was doing, looked over at me, and she said, I would tell you to act like a man. <laughs> no man would ask his wife that. It's what comes with being married. God gives men and women children in the bonds of a holy matrimony. Amen? It's part of what marriage is all about, being fruitful and multiplying, declared right there at the beginning. Thirdly, when you look at the Scriptures, the Scriptures repeatedly present childlessness as an unfortunate thing, and if you've ever met people who are unable to have children, you know how unfortunate it is. It's a hardship to them. And you should have compassion for them. The scriptures repeatedly present childlessness as an unfortunate thing. You can look at Hosea, for those of you taking notes, 9, 10 through 17. Hosea 9, 10 through 17. Exodus 23, 25 and 26. Deuteronomy 7, 13 and 14. Genesis 31, 30 verse 1. 1 Samuel 1, 10. 1 Samuel 1, 10. Luke one twenty five. So you have all these passages of Scripture. If these verses are not implicit that birth control should not be used, then what are they? They are implicit. Everything within the Word of God moves us to embracing children, to wanting children, to see them as a goodness and a blessing and a gift from God. It's throughout Scripture, and I know it well. Because after me and my wife had two children, I got a vasectomy because I told her we'll either be broke the rest of our lives or I'll go nuts, one of the two. And as I continued in the Scripture, God showed me, Matt, you don't have my view of children. And I repented before him, and we saved up for two and a half years to get my vasectomy undone. And the Lord blessed us with nine more children have 10 years between our second child and our third child. Praise be his name. Now let's talk about history. Let's talk about history. I had one person say to me, the reason that Christians stood against birth control for the first 1,900 years, Pastor Matt, 
is because they did not have the scientific means to use it prior to that. It wasn't around. That's why it's only been embraced over the last hundred years or so. Okay, that's utterly false. And only shows one's ignorance about the history of birth control. The truth of the matter is, in Egyptian historical writings, for example, contraceptive medicines are mentioned as early as 1900 B.C. The desire not to have children and the use of a phalanx of means to accomplish that, i.e. birth control, is found throughout the history of man. So do a little study, and you'll realize man has been very adept at preventing children for thousands of years. It didn't just come around 100 years ago. Anti-conception was the overwhelming, prevailing view when Christianity came on the scene. For example, Tacitus, the Roman historian, spoke of the time of the apostles as one in which, quote, childlessness prevailed, unquote. Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman magistrate from that era, said that he lived, quote, in an age when even one child is thought a burden, preventing the rewards of childlessness, unquote. What are the rewards of childlessness? Wealth and ease. It is the number one reason men pursue and put much effort into not having children is because they want wealth and they want ease. It is the number one overriding reason for the use of birth control. Augustus Caesar, right there, time of Christ, said this, because they were having huge problems. People didn't want to have children. The Roman government was actually giving financial incentives to try to get people to have children. And Augustus Caesar, in the midst of his desperation, said at one point, quote, women who want to be sexually rather than maternally beautiful are commonplace. Women who want to be sexually rather than maternally beautiful are commonplace. The desire for individual freedom seems to be running counter to the needs of the race. They were committing familial suicide at that time in Rome. That's why they had to turn to immigration, keep an influx of population. Of course, it didn't end well. An historian from the 19th century, well-known, Theodore Mommsen, he was a German classical scholar, historian, jurist. He won the Nobel Prize in literature, archaeologist, politician, regarded as the greatest classicist in the 19th century. He said this regarding Rome. He said, childlessness became more and more common, especially among the upper classes. The maxim to which Polybius, a century before, traced the decay of Hellas, or the Greeks, that it is the duty of the citizen to keep great wealth together and therefore not to beget too many children. Where were the times when the designation children producer had been a term of honor for the Romans? It had ended a hundred years before that. It had ended long before Christ had showed up. If you read the writings 200 B.C. of the Romans, they talked about the wonder of family, the goodness of family, monogamy, children. And by the time you got to when Christ came on the scene, it was pure decadence. Why? 
because they desired wealth and ease. As Momsen talks about here, read Will Durant on the Roman civilization. Fascinating as you read through how you see the parallels between America today and Rome then. He goes on and he says, in consequence of such a social condition, the Latin stock in Italy underwent an alarming diminution, and its fair provinces were overspread, partly by parasitic immigrants, partly by sheer desolation. The giddier the height to which the riches arose, the deeper the abyss of poverty yawned. The more frequently amidst the changeful world of speculation and playing at hazard, where individuals tossed from the bottom to the top and again from the top to the bottom, the wider the chasm by which the two worlds were externally divided, the more completely they coincided in like annihilation, in like annihilation of family life, which is yet, listen to what he says here, which is yet the German core of all nationality, and not until the dragon seed of North America ripens will the world have again similar fruits to reap. And the dragon seed of North America has ripened. And you're witnessing it in time and space. That's what Momsen had to say. Now Momsen mentions Polybius and the Greeks. He mentions Greece. Remember the Romans defeated the Greeks. The Greeks fell to the Romans. Polybius was a Greek historian of the Hellenistic period, noted for his work called The Histories, which covered the period of 264 to 146 B.C. in detail. The work describes the rise of the Roman Republic to the status of dominance in the ancient Mediterranean world. Notice what Polybius says of his nation, Greece, and what caused their fall to the Romans. Here's what he says. Quote, In our own time, the whole of Greece has been subject to a low birth rate and a general decrease of the population, owing to which cities have become deserted and the land has ceased to yield fruit, although there have neither been continuous wars nor epidemics. He then states that it's been done by their own hand. He said the people even prayed to their gods, and he said it was laughable because they did it at their own hand. They practiced birth control. And they did so because they pursued wealth and ease. Polybius went on to say this. He said, quote, For as men had fallen into such a state of pretentiousness, avarice, and indolence, that they did not wish to marry or if they married to rear the children born to them, or at most, as a rule, but one or two of them, so as to leave these in affluence and bring them up to waste their substance, the evil rapidly and insensibly grew, unquote. That is exactly where America's at, and we've been there for decades. And we've had a huge decline in the number of children that couples have for over 150 years now. We haven't replaced ourselves in the last five years. Demographers say you need 2.1 per couple. Last year, 1.71. Western Europe, far worse, 1.24, 1.28, committing familial suicide. Anti-conception, the use of birth control is most always about wealth and ease and its pursuit 
and it is an evil, and it is insensible. And it was this mentality that brought down Greece to Rome, and it was this same mentality that also brought Rome down to the Germanic hordes. Carl Zimmerman in his magnum opus, Family and Civilization, showed how the tipping point of the decline and destruction of any civilization or society is when the people no longer want to have children. And he said, I don't mean by that zero, although there are those, he said, but what I mean is they only want one or two. That is the clear indicator that they'll be destroyed. In 1947, he predicted that America would soon see divorce for any reason or no reason at all. No fault divorce came late 60s, early 70s. He said you'd soon see legal abortion, Roe v. Wade, 1973, and that you would soon see rapid, rampant homosex throughout the country. Need I say more? He said that in 47, based on his premise that that's the decline of societies into decadence when the people no longer want to have children. And it was why the Greeks fell to the Romans, and it's why the Romans fell to the Germanic hordes. Because of the people not wanting to have children. And it was in this anti-child, pro-contraception environment that Christianity came on the scene bringing a completely different message. That children are a gift from God. That we should desire them. They wrote reams on marriage, family, children. Transforming nations and cultures and society. The church confronted this anti-conception, pro-birth control juggernaut and presented God's view to the nations. This is why they rescued children from the infanticide walls, breaking the law to protect life, and saw the end of such walls in all of Roman society. This is why orphanages were built. This is why children were cared for. And for over 1,900 years of Christian history, not a single Christian body ever embraced the use of birth control. In fact, they all condemned the use of birth control, without exception. This did not mean that all was perfect, nor does it mean that some people did not practice contraception. One area of history that most seem ignorant of is the enormous impact the Reformation in the 1500s had upon family life. The Reformation not only reformed church government in bad theology, it not only reformed civil government, it not only reformed self-government, but it also reformed family government. Many people of that time, during the Reformation, did not want large numbers of children. They did not, especially those with means. But the Reformers revived the message of the early churchmen, that children are a gift from God, that we should desire them. They wrote reams on marriage, family, and children. And you would do well to read it. Just Luther's Table Talks is a goldmine on family and children. Luther, being one of my favorite reformers, wrote this about children and about the condition of men in his day. He said, quote, Moses numbers fertility among the blessings. Remember I said that? There will not be a barren woman among you. He says, Exodus 23, 
26. We do not regard this so highly today. Although we like and desire it in cattle, yet in the human race there are few who regard a woman's fertility as a blessing. Indeed, there are many who have an aversion for it and regard sterility as a special blessing. Surely this is also contrary to nature, much less pious and saintly, for this affection has been implanted by God in man's nature so that it desires its increase and multiplication. It is inhuman and godless to have a loathing for offspring. Unquote. You know anything about Luther? He was frank. He said what needed to be said, and he said them plainly. Didn't have to wonder. I wonder what he really thinks. Here's what Luther said in another one of his writings. He said, today you find many people who do not want to have children. It is even more disgraceful that you find princes who allow themselves to be forced not to marry for fear that the members of their house would increase beyond a definite limit. So I always laugh when people say, how many children do you want to have? How about as many as God gives you? There's a fresh thought. He goes on and he says, Surely such men deserve that their memory be blotted out from the land of the living. Who is there who would not detest these swinish monsters? Unquote. That's what Luther thought of birth control and the anti-conception mentality. He said this, quote, Indeed, some spouses who marry and live together have various ends in mind, but rarely children. Marriage has been reduced to it's for your happiness in our culture. You wonder why the divorce rate is as big as it is in America? Maybe it has something to do with what we teach people marriage is about. Luther said this, marriage is to be unquestioned. It is God's way of life. So also are the children to marriage Strong families make strong societies. Marriage and children mean work and suffering to raise the family. Yes, it does. But this is the way of life, a sacrifice unto God. Fundamentally, prosperity in a society and strong familialism go together. The idle-bellied who abstain from matrimony and familialism are the very antichrists. Unquote. Swinish monsters, antichrist, loathsome folk. (laughs) Think of all the people Luther's offended. In our little soft culture. Want to know one of the reasons we have a bunch of soft babies in this culture? It's because they were either raised by themselves or had one measly sibling. And because of that, they never learned how to deal with conflict. They never understood how to deal with not everybody just living for me. And making sure I'm happy. No. When you have children, you have many of them, they're tougher. That's a fact. And they're not offended. I'm offended that you said that. Like, that's an argument against what I just stated. I'm offended. It's not an argument. Grow up. Watch a John Wayne movie or something. <laughs> Get a clue, man. 
Luther said this, the familistic person must count upon non-economic rewards. Did you hear that? The familistic person, the person who actually wants to have children, Luther and Katie had six of them, must count upon non-economic rewards. He must have need of faith. Marriage is a social institution and not merely individual pleasure. It's pleasure, but that isn't merely what it is. It's a social institution. It's massively important, and children are a huge part of it. My favorite scene in It's a Wonderful Life is where the guy who started the plastics company shows up in his chauffeured limousine and his girl has her mink coat on and he's sitting there with his jalopy that he has to open from the inside (laughs) when he's outside of it. And yeah, I love that. The rewards are non-economic. But they're rich. You heard Bill Gates and Melinda are getting divorced, right? Tim Bachleitner, sitting over there in the corner, told me when he heard the news, they were in the car together with some of his kids, and he looked at all of his kids and he said, see, I'm a far richer man than Bill Gates. Amen. Luther said this, He said, most certainly, father and mother are apostles, bishops, and priests to their children, for it is they who make them acquainted with the gospel. Luther also said this, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers, because you didn't just throw them away back then, you washed them out and you reused them, I'm so old, there were no disposable diapers when I was a kid. There they were in the diaper pail in the bathroom while you're sitting on the john. There they are from your younger siblings right there waiting to go down to the washer to get cleaned out. When a father goes ahead and washes diapers for his child, God, with all the angels and creatures, is smiling because he is doing so in Christian faith. The only thing that helps you understand the importance of children. And having them is the Christian faith. When you live in the midst of an anti-conception society and government like we have in our day, that makes any man's heart glow. That quote by Luther about washing diapers. And because of the writing of the Reformers, Christianity again reigned in the minds of many. Children were not viewed as a burden, but rightly as they are, a blessing. But times turned dark again. The modern contraceptive, we can't get enough birth control movement began in the 1860s. It grew with awful consequences in the minds of men and in the structure of society. Awful consequences. In 1908, the Anglican Church condemned, quote, the growing practice of artificial restriction of the family. Why? Because it had become prevalent. So the Anglican Church condemns it, but practically, listen to this. In 1874, the average Anglican pastor had 5.2 children, and by 1911, just 30-some years later, the average Anglican pastor had only 2.3 children. 
from 5.2 down to 2.3. And in 1930, the Anglican bishops in England, on a vote of 193 to 67, became the first Christian body in the history of the world to embrace birth control. So note this. The change in clerical family behavior came before the change in doctrine. In other words, they changed the word of God to accommodate their lifestyle. It wasn't like they came across something in Scripture and realized, oh, all these Christians before us for 1,900 years were wrong about birth control. Wow. And then they started using birth control. No, they were already using birth control. And they perverted the word of God in order to justify their use of birth control. And it's one of the huge damnations of our country. Egalitarianism is another one. Removing all distinctions between males and females. All that stuff, which the church has bought into hook, line, and sinker. Egalitarianism and birth control. They have no idea. They're blind. And they can't see it for what it is. And all the pastors will tell them how smart they are to use birth control. In 1923, The Witness, which was the official Missouri Synod magazine, accused the Birth Control Federation of America of spattering, quote, this country with slime. And they called Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, a she-devil. Wow. You know what most churchmen would say if you use that language today as a churchman? against the evil promulgated by Planned Parenthood? Pastor Walter Meyer, who was the founding preacher of the Lutheran Hour, said, quote, the most repugnant of modern aberrations representing a 20th century renewal of pagan bankruptcy. That's what he said about birth control. Yet, in 1890, the average Missouri Synod pastor had 6.5 children, And by 1920, just 30 years later, they only had 3.7. A drop of 42%. Christians in all denominations were using birth control, embracing the anti-conception mentality. And in 1931, here in America, the first Christian body, the Federal Council of Churches, embraced the use of birth control. And just 35 years after that, the first Christian body embraced the legitimate use of abortion. The Washington Post editorial, when this happened in 1931, the first Christian body ever in America, just one year after the first body ever in 1900 years of Christianity, embraced the use of birth control. They wrote in their editorial, quote, the suggestion that the use of legalized contraceptives would be careful and restrained, because that's what they said in their statement, that we must use this carefully and restrained. The suggestion that the use of legalized contraceptives would be careful and restrained is preposterous. This is the Washington Post. Carried to its logical conclusion, the editorial goes on and says, carried to its logical conclusion, the committee's report if carried into effect, would sound the death knoll of marriage as a holy institution by establishing degrading practices which would encourage indiscriminate immorality. 
That's what they said in 1931, and look at where we're at now. Look at our nation now. Look at the state of the church now. We live in a nation committing familial suicide. We live in a nation where the pastors tell you, use birth control for at least the first two or three years of your marriage so you get to know each other. It's ridiculous. Children are what happens when a man and a woman get married. It's God-ordained. It's part of his created order. It is a no-brainer. Talk to a Christian pastor well-known. You'd know his name if I told you now. Did an interview for him for one of his things, and this was just um, two weeks ago. He told me, um, when I told him my story about 10 years between our second and third, he told me with grief in his voice, he's my age, a little bit older than me, how him and his wife didn't realize all that until it was too late to have more children. They had two. And then they made sure they had no more after that. And it was a grief in his heart, a regret in his heart. Me and my wife have been up to Mackinac Island numerous times. We go in the fall because we don't like the huge crowds. But there's all these old people there. Of course, now we've become some of these old people. (laughs) And when we would go and we would visit up there, we'd have our children with us, eight kids, nine kids with us. Um... And they would sit there and see all our kids, and they would ask, you know, are these all your children? And I'd like to tease them, and I'd say, no. And then I would say, two of them aren't with us right now. <laughs> so so we get into conversations about God, about the gospel, about children. And every one of them, without exception, at some point, they all had their one, their two, or their three. And at some point, they would look, And they would say, I regret that we didn't have more children. And you could tell by the look on their face and the tone of their voice, it was a true regret of their heart. I want to read to you these quotes from Angelo Cotavia. If you know anything about me, I have this crazy love affair with Angelo Cotavia's writings. He said, civilization happens when individuals produce more than it takes to sustain them. Civilization happens when individuals produce more than it takes to sustain them. Persuading anyone to work for anyone but himself is hard. That is why marriage makes civilization by tying a man's sexual satisfaction to his producing for others far more than he needs for himself. Cotavilla also said this. He said, marriage underpins society most of all by turning young men and women into fathers and mothers, people who practice self-sacrifice every day, who have a stake in social order, who are the likeliest to protect it against enemies foreign and domestic, and who alone can assure that the next generation will not wreck it. Amen. Those are powerful words. If you ever get a chance to read his book entitled Character of Nations, I can't encourage you strongly enough to read that work by Cotavia. This is also an excellent work on the history of Christianity, the recent history of Christianity here in America, 
and its embrace of birth control called Godly Seed by Alan Carlson. It's a short work, about 135 pages. It's a gold mine. I want to close by saying this. The promotion of anti-conceptive thought stands in complete contradiction to the created order of God in all the verses that we looked at, and so many more we didn't look at or note. Here again, man is on the throne determining what is best for him. Understand, this is rubber-meets-the-road Christianity, allowing God to give us children as he desires, whether he wants to give us one child or 21 children. Here again, man is on the throne determining what is best for him. I thought it was so wise for me to use birth control and go get that vasectomy. You do not know what God will teach you or how he will mature you if you allow him to give you as many children as he desires. You do not know what spiritual growth or maturation you will retard if you do not use birth control and deny God's gift of children. Having children is what God has given us to do. Most of us, anyway. Having children is what God has given us to do as married men and women. This is what God gives us to do. Have children. And look at the result when men want to abrogate it. Look at the state of our culture and nation, and yet the Christian leaders still don't get it. They overwhelmingly, almost 100%, advocate birth control, promulgate the anti-conception mentality. Why do they do it? I'll tell you why. It's simple. Because they want their own wealth and ease. That's why. This culture does not place value on women for their motherhood. It places value on women for their career. And that is why most throw their kids in daycare and then the government school. We have a nation of women who are taught Barbara Walters is what you want to be like or whoever the latest deal is. I know I'm dating myself here. Did you ever notice that the media, they never have a woman who had a lot of children and honor her? They always honor the person who didn't make their life count for their helpmate, namely their husband, but went and made some other man successful through her career and work. They make that one, the one you want to be like, young women. That's done by design. And it's a great evil. Sadly, most women do not have the theological teeth to withstand it. They capitulate to that mentality and embrace the world's thinking, or else they think very low of themselves. If you are doing the right thing and not giving your children to be raised by strangers, your home doing the dishes, changing diapers, being deprived of adult conversation, 
I want you to know that all of heaven, all of nature, and all godly men rejoice in you. We rejoice in you. We thank God for you. Your labor does not go unnoticed. And brother, if you haven't lauded your wife for what she has done in the bearing and raising of children routinely, not one day out of the year, most days out of the year, you should do that. You must do it. You must thank God for her. All the forces are against her to make her feel, I'm wasting my time here. So why don't we say all the women who are mothers, please stand up so we can say thank you. I know we don't want to, but please do. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these godly Christian women. Lord, we thank you for those who want to live in obedience to you, to see you glorified in the earth. And Lord, the importance women play in the lives of a nation is massive. for good or for bad, O oh Lord. Lord, we just ask and pray that women would see their God-given role, their function, that they would hold it in esteem, that we would see a Christianity reformed that would hold it in esteem, that we would see husbands who hold it in esteem, a mom who takes care of her children as a keeper of the home, Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for your goodness to us, that we know you, that we know your thoughts, that we know how to govern our lives according to your word. We just ask and pray, O oh Lord, that we would do so more and more as the days go forward. Lord, we pray for any amongst us who are unable to have children. Lord, we ask that your blessing would be upon them, that they would be able to taste that goodness that they long for. God, we give praise and honor to you. And we ask you, you would keep our hearts hungry for you, that we would make our homes strong in the midst of a nation that is in utter ruin. And we are men, O oh God. Let them think, Father. Let them falsely believe that they're going to trample all. But we are men. And they are living in a fantasy land if they think men aren't going to stand against their evil. Lord, the judgment you have brought upon this nation is just and sure for the sins and rebellion of our country. Use it for good. Grant repentance. May men be men. May women be women. May you be glorified in the home once again. 
We give thanks to you, O God. And we pray that you use the fleeting and few things said in this sermon about this matter for good to cause others to study more, to think more, both from your word and from history and Christian thought. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.